Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, it's sleigh bells and snowflakes aplenty as we're cramming our entire Christmas day into one hour with a scientific look at our favourite festive traditions. From the psychology of gift giving to how to eat Christmas dinner in space and why board games bring out the beast in all of us. I'm Georgia Mills. And I'm Chris Smith. And this is the Naked Scientist Christmas Special. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The first part of my Christmas day is always to see if Santa has visited in the night. The jolly philanthropist has never let me down yet with his trusty sled and reindeer. But he's had those for years. Isn't it about time he got a tech upgrade? Well, Peter Cowley is the Naked Scientist tech expert, and he's been thinking about how a savvy Santa might cut down his time and energy in the future. Hi, Peter. To start with, love the bow tie. Oh, thank you. Yeah, nobody can see it. <laughs> it's very across. large. It's almost as big as Peter's shoulder blade down <laughs> Where did you get that? Uh, I don't know. Joke shop, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> well, to start with, how big of a task does Santa have Christmas Eve? Well, I was amazed by this. I did some research on this, and the numbers, of course, are huge. Because if you take the number of children on the planet, you've probably got about a billion and we'll come to later which ones are not going to get presents because they've been naughty. <laughs> He's got about 300 million miles to travel over the time when it's dark and if you extend it, the Earth's rotation and everything, you end up with about 2,000 miles per second, which is 1% of the speed of light. Um, that's 150 times faster than the Voyager 1. And if you take the, the weight, each gift, say, weighs a kilo, seems a lot, but let's say a kilo, then it's half a million tonnes of presents, which requires five and a half million reindeer to put it around <laughs> the place. And the total energy usage will be of the order of twice what the Earth uses <laughs> in a whole year. And of course, the interesting fact also, if Santa was to stop for a mince pie and a glass of sherry at each time, which he's supposed to do, then he would have consumed about 20,000 tonnes of, um, of mince pies, 150 billion calories, and he would be 50 million times over the drink driving limit. <laughs> Well, we'll hear a bit more about how Santa would fail a breathalyzer later. But first, that's an enormous amount of work for one man. Could technology give him a little bit of help? Well, I think the, there's a big problem, of course, travelling at that speed with air resistance. So I think he really he needs to be travelling above the Earth's atmosphere and then send stuff down by drone or by some means or other to get it down the chimney. You have to be very accurate, of course. Also, as we're getting greener and greener, I suspect also he really ought to be, become sort of zero emissions, which is a problem with five and a half million <laughs> reindeer, as you can imagine. <laughs> Literally, they have to stop every well, They're ruminants, aren't they? So they belch, Yeah, imagine they what they're doing. Yes, and other yeah. things as well, I suspect, which will then re-enter orbit, won't it? So... 
The other issue, of course, is I did think about using LED headlights rather than normal, but isn't that? It's actually radar system you'll do because the amount of space debris up there is so huge that you could be running into things the whole time. So. <laughs> Outside of a sled, are there any other ways technology might give him a bit of a break? Well, I'd sort of drop off points so that he could drop off somewhere and parents could collect, so a bit like some of the sort of click and collect things we've got. <laughs> but I think I think the big one, and this is, this is mm, slightly controversial, is that perhaps he shouldn't be transferring atoms around to children. He should be transferring electrons around. Now, electrons, of course, we're getting more and more of that anyway with downloads and with music and, um, and with money being transferred as well. But how about having a 3D printer in every home? So then you get something downloaded to the 3D printer, which could be a piece of jewellery, but it also could be food. I don't know if you noticed, but there's more and more 3D printed foods around now. So, so Santa could send you a 3D printed mince pie in return for all the money Correct. we've given exactly. him over the years. Exactly. And what about in terms of, you mentioned earlier, working out who's been naughty and who's been nice? This is a biggie because I did a bit of research again in Mum's Net, this really strong (laughs) feelings about mothers. about (laughs) well-known academic. (laughs) Yes. It's pretty big. It's pretty dominant in the UK. The concept of not giving your child present, how naughty they have to be where you can let them down on Christmas Day. But I was thinking that perhaps we need some data behind this. And so the sort of data we could have would be social media postings if they're old enough. Surveillance? (laughs) Uh, Tracking, you know, if they've been exercising, the mobile phones will give those tracking data. So, yeah, the whole thing is a real can of worms as to (laughs) when you can choose whether a child's naughty or not. So the answer is probably no. Let's not go down that. Well, thank you very much. That's tech investor Peter Cowley. Now, whether or not he's got five million reindeer pulling his sleigh, Father Christmas's reindeer do nonetheless have some interesting aspects to their biology and physiology. They can genuinely have a red nose, it turns out, but do they really enjoy carrots? Felicity Bedford is on the case. I'm walking through Scottsdale's garden centre and I'm here to find some reindeers. At the moment, what I can see are some dancing polar bears. There's lots of Christmas tree decorations, but as yet, no sign of reindeers. After a bit of exploring, I found the reindeer outside, where I was joined by Laura Nadine Schumacher, a zoologist from Cambridge University, who explained how they cope with the cold. As you can see, we have two male reindeers here. They're called Frost and Ice. They have very nice soft fur. Feel this. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah, so their thick coat keeps them warm in the winter and they actually have special hollow hairs that trap the air and keep them really warm. And can you see this tuft of hair that they have kind of in their mid-neck? It's almost like a beard under their necks. Exactly, and that this keeps them extra warm because that's like around the heart and vital organ area, so that provides an extra bit of warmth for them. Reindeers are known to have glowing red noses. This is not completely true. Like, there's no light shining out of their noses. But their noses are especially adapted to the cold by having extra blood vessels that warm up the air as it comes into the lungs. So they can appear a little bit red. So there's no real Rudolph, but some reindeers, if they're feeling particularly chilly, might have a slightly red nose. Exactly. Frost and ice seem very happy living in Cambridge, but in the wild, reindeer are found around the Arctic Circle, where there is constant darkness in winter, and the sun never sets in summer. Body clocks mean that most animals, including humans, are influenced by day-night cycles. This is why we get jet-lagged. Apparently, this isn't a problem for Santa's trusty steeds. 
They don't have a circadian clock, so their body rhythm is different from ours. They are not very affected by the constant dark that they experience in the Arctic. We're looking at these reindeers and they have most beautiful large eyes that are looking out at us and I'm wondering whether that might be an adaptation to the dark as well. Yeah, so as you can imagine, if you're living in constant darkness during the winter, you don't have the same light as you have in the summer when there's constant light. So their eyes actually change color, which means they can increase the light capture during the winter by turning their eyes blue, while during the summer their eyes are golden. I've been joined by Kate, who looks after the reindeers, and she's gone and got some of their food, which looks like pellets. They're extremely keen to get their food. They're right up at the fence, come to see us, and I suppose we should give them their breakfast. I note that you're not feeding them carrots. I've heard that reindeers are very fussy eaters, but they seem to be enjoying this. Is this more natural food for them? Yeah, um, they can't eat carrots because the, the teeth they have, they don't they have very, very small teeth only in the bottom row, so they can't chew a carrot. But they eat, they eat this pelleted food, they'll graze throughout the year, and they'll eat, their favourite food is moss, lichen, and things like that. These reindeers have got some really spectacular antlers on their heads, but they're looking a little bit tatty. I understand these are both male reindeers. Laura, perhaps you could explain to me why their antlers are looking a bit rough around the edges. As you said, they have nicer and bigger antlers than the females. However, the male reindeers lose their antlers during the winter when it gets really cold, and the females don't. So if you're seeing a sleigh pulled around the sky by reindeers with antlers, these are probably female because male reindeers won't have their antlers anymore at this time of the year. So it's girl power when it comes to Santa's sleigh. Yeah, pure girl power led by Rudolphia. That was Felicity Bedford speaking there to zoologist Laura Nadine Schumacher at Scottsdale's Garden Centre in Cambridge with the reindeer, frost and ice. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Georgia Mills. Let me introduce the party goers who are with us this week. As we open our presents, we have with us Mike Paik, who's a psychologist from Anglia Ruskin University, and Connie Orbach is our own Naked Scientist team member, and uh, she's going to tell us what the best, I suppose, recipe for gift-giving is. You've heard from Peter Cowley, our tech expert, who's been looking at uh, whether or not Santa uh, really should tech up for Christmas in the future. And also with us is Adam Townsend. Now, he's an interesting fellow. He's a mathematician from University College London. He's turned up with a chocolate fountain because his PhD is in the science of the chocolate fountain, and so he's going to switch that on for us later. But in the meantime, I reckon we should get present unwrapping. What do you reckon, Georgia? I'm ready to open mine. I'm very excited. Okay, right, so <laughs> everyone's got a gift. Unwrap away, and then we'll find out what you've all got. <laughs> I got marshmallows! <laughs> right, OK, here we go. Oh, this is fantastic. I've got... Monopoly. <laughs> Very nice. I actually got the game. We can set that up. I have a knight. Uh, so it looks like a carved reindeer. Oh, it's a reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> what you got, Mike? Any, any good? I've got a five-pound nut. That's just quick. what I wanted. Brilliant. Connie, what do we got? I'm not sure how I feel about mine. I've got um, kitchen foil. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, she really has something. I've got Who kitchen foil. Um, Did you buy that? <laughs> that was me. Got Thanks, Georgia. You know me so well. <laughs> kitchen foil. Uh, Adam, what you got? Uh, yeah, I have some uh, French brandy. 
You got a bottle um, of brandy? Yeah, am I supposed to be drinking this now? Well, actually, this this is quite handy because actually coming on later in the programme, we'll be talking to a road traffic officer who mm. is going to talk to us about how breathalysers work. Mm-hmm. Do you mind doing a little experiment for us? Uh, that's uh, that's fine. Do you fine. like brandy? Um, w- today, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, how much do you want me to, to have? How much do you need to drink? Oh, bottle. No, no, no. <laughs> I reckon, well, most people recreationally, when they go out drinking, they, they would have, they would say, well, I'm probably okay. What do you think? A couple of pints or a Not couple of, of brandy. Of, couple of, not of brandy. <laughs> yeah, right. So why don't you do, I don't know, three fingers? That's about, <laughs> three that's about fingers, two shots. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's got about half a pint of brandy. <laughs> He's okay. got massive I'd, say, I'd say that's four shots. That, that I can smell that from here. <laughs> Adam's going to drink that, and, uh, and then we'll see what the breathalyzer says towards the end of the programme. And you can maybe tell us if you feel competent and confident to drive as well. Happy to. Happy to help. Thanks, Adam. You get drinking. Now, Connie, you've actually been looking at the whole question of, um, of the science of, of Christmas gift-giving and all that kind of thing. Mixed feelings from you, then, on your gift. Yeah, I mean... I've got to say, it wouldn't have been my first choice. Um, (laughs) Though I'm sure it will come in handy. It's a very useful gift. And I think that's one of the things about gift giving is there's lots of social norms and I think pretty much everyone out there knows that probably shouldn't get someone kitchen foil for Christmas because it's just, for some reason, it's not acceptable. It's too every day for a gift. But there's also, there's just generally, I imagine everyone's been feeling it this Christmas, a lot of anxiety around gift giving. It's quite stressful. And we spend a lot of time trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the person we're buying it for. And actually, it turns out mainly failing. So you're saying people are not in- intrinsically good gift givers. Is that, is that your point? Um, I think it's a bit of both. Basically, everyone is a gift giver. Well, most people, I hope, are both gift givers and gift receivers. But the thing is, is that you're in quite a different situation if you're the giver to when you're the receiver. And we're really, really not very good at putting ourselves in both shoes. So when we're receiving a gift, we tend to like to tell people what we want. And we like it when they give us what we want. But when we're giving someone a gift, we ask them what they want. And then we think, you know what would be much more exciting is if I got them a surprise. (laughs) And then we think that actually is probably a much better gift because I spent a lot more time. You know, I thought about it. I wasn't just told. I went out and, and put the time and the effort in to get them a surprise. And then the person getting the gift goes... Well, you weren't listening, clearly, because I asked for something and you just didn't give it to me. And it's actually quite disappointed. And we do it time and time again, even though when we're in the position of of receiving that gift, we will have that same kind of like, you don't even know me at all. You didn't listen. You weren't thinking. I do it all the time. Uh, My mum is, is particularly good at telling me exactly what she wants for Christmas. And... I often just completely ignore what she said piece. and get to something else. You go off piece quite literally. Yeah. Would, would you like to hear what the Sunday Times suggests? They say there are five rules of giving. This is in the Sunday Times from last week. And they said, choose a gift that reflects your true self. Givers and receivers feel closer if the present reflects the giver. That was their number one piece of advice. Their second piece of advice, don't add a little extra when you give someone an expensive gift. Uh, American researchers have recently shown in a series of experiments that if you buy someone something decent, like a 200 quid coffee maker, don't add a free £5 get you some free coffee with this gift voucher on the side because, as they say, bundled gifts subconsciously end up with average the value. So, when you, in other words, when you see the gift and you see something posh, expensive and something cheap to go with, your brain 
settles on, a, an, on an average between the two and judges the gift to be worth about that. So don't devalue the posh car by chucking in a, a, you know, a free valet with it because that's, <laughs> oh, that's not going to buy you much cred. It also says don't spend too much early on in the relationship and don't spend too little later. It adds that cautiously. Um, it says young, unattached men often view giving gifts as fiscal foreplay. I never <laughs> thought of it quite like that. Um, if you give something too pricey, it says it could be regarded as a sexual bribe. Um, and also says don't give presents that could be a hint because that could cause offence. Don't give people deodorant for Christmas because of what the, the message might be saying. Um, so basically, what, I mean, what you're saying, Connie, is that the best thing to do is to tell someone what you I want. I get it. Yeah. I mean, there's um, what we've got today. So Mike got £5. And actually, there's there's also a lot bundled up in... We see gifts as having their intrinsic value, the, the quality of the gift. But there's also a symbolic value. And so money is a really interesting one because when you're giving the gift, there's very little symbolic value in money. You're like, That's £5. I didn't do anything else or put any other time into it, but it's five pounds. But what they find with money is actually people really like getting money. <laughs> There's no thought in it. You know, it, it doesn't matter. And, and a lot of the time that's the thing. Um, when we talk about it, it's the thought that counts. It turns out that actually the thought counts only to the giver, not to the receiver. And the receiver usually won't spend much time thinking about how much thought went into it at all unless unless they've given an obvious hint. So Peter over here got a nice handmade piece. So he's been told to think about all the thought in that piece. Therefore, it's a good present. And, and equally, if a present like mine, for instance, is a terrible present, a kitchen foil, then I... A lot of thought went into that. Do you mind? Well, I was about to say, I've been given the cue that there's no thought that gone into that. So that, again, I've been cued to think about the giver and, and what went into that. And I'm quite annoyed, personally. Oh. <laughs> but most of the time, with a normal present, non-handmade or not really bad you're not cued and people actually don't tend to put much time into thinking about whereas the person on the other end has put so much time into it and so I guess the main message here is that you don't really don't need to put that much time into gift giving just to get people what they want and uh, everyone will be happy and we'll all have a much easier Christmas. Oh, well, that's my Christmas sorted then. Thanks very much, Connie. And I'll have to bear that in mind for next year's Christmas shopping, which inevitably I'll probably still end up doing on Christmas Eve, given my track record. Georgia? Well, now we've all opened our presents, some of us are happier than others. It's time for arguably the best part of the day, which is Christmas dinner. Chris, what's your favourite part of the race? Well, mine is, is Christmas crackers. I love kicking off Christmas dinner with a cracker and so I reckon we should go for it. We've all got, got some, some crackers here because I'm, I'm just aching to get into these jokes. Okay, Mike. So, Georgia? Okay. Three, two, one. <laughs> okay, who's going to get to the joke first? What kind of sandals do frogs wear? Hop-hopping crack. Flip-hops. Flip- oh, that's better than the answer. <laughs> it's actually open-toed sandals. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put my hat on. Here we go. Um, what does a clock do when it's hungry? Tick. Top, don't know. No, it goes back for. <laughs> I just got it. <laughs> it goes back four seconds. <laughs> Around the world, people are celebrating Christmas in very different ways, and that too goes for people out of this world. Kat Arney has all you need to know about Christmas in space. Many people around the world will be joining together with family and friends at this time of year. And a big part of it is sitting down together and tucking into a tasty, festive feast. But this isn't just restricted to the earthbound among us. British astronaut Commander Tim Peake and his colleagues up on the International Space Station will be celebrating together too. But what will it be like? For a start, because it's an international enterprise, not everyone on the ISS actually celebrates Christmas, which is a nominally Christian festival. 
Nonetheless, December the 25th has been adopted as a holiday in space, just as it is in many countries back here on Earth. So that means a relaxing day off for the astronauts, with only essential or emergency tasks to attend to. Based on the food packages he knows have been sent up with him, Tim has said that he's looking forward to starting his Christmas day with a bacon sandwich. And he's also said that there will definitely be Christmas pudding, as apparently one went up on a previous mission. But what about the main meal itself? Rather than sharpening up their carving knives and wrestling a turkey into the oven like many of us here in the UK will be doing on Christmas Day, Tim and his colleagues will be cooking in a very different way. For a start, they have to deal with a problem we don't have in our terrestrial kitchens, zero gravity. Everything needs to be pinned down, either with duct tape or Velcro, to make sure it doesn't go floating off around the place and cause problems. Then there's the food itself. It mostly comes in sealed bags and pouches that are heated up in a food warmer. There are no ovens or gas burners up on the space station, for obvious safety reasons. Whatever meal they're eating, all the food is pretty sticky and solid, to cut down on the risk of rogue crumbs, liquid or peas escaping and causing havoc with the air conditioning ducts. Living in zero gravity also means that trying to put food on plates is a waste of time. Astronauts prefer to wrap their meals in tortillas or just eat food straight out of the pouch. In terms of Christmas dinner itself, the choice of food is down to each crew member. Some may opt for a vague approximation of the traditional festive feast, sliced turkey, reconstituted potatoes and processed vegetables. But as the airline industry knows well, up at altitude food can taste more bland than usual, and even more so on the ISS. So Tim and his colleagues might opt for something a little more tasty. One more thing, if you're anything like my family, it just wouldn't be Christmas without a boozy tipple or two. But sadly for the occupants of the ISS, alcohol isn't allowed due to the risk of it interfering with the space station's water filtration system, despite rumours that the Russians may have smuggled up a secret stash of vodka. And in case you were wondering, yes, they do have a box of Christmas decorations up on the International Space Station. And just as it is for many of us here on Terra Firma, apparently it can be a bit of a challenge finding them when the festive season starts. Finally, as we come to the end of the year, I'd like to wish for joy and peace on Earth and in space for all of us. I'll see you in 2016 for more science fun. And thank you very much, Kat. Merry Christmas to you as well. And speaking of space, here's a festive message from the space boffins, Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham. Now approaching uh, lunar sunrise. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Played up uh, courtesy of uh, music submitted to the Mission Control Center from uh, the German people with a Christmas message to the crew this morning. Today is uh, Santa Claus Day in Germany.
Greetings from the International Space Station and the crew of ISS Expedition 26. Currently, we're orbiting the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour, over 200 miles above our beautiful planet that we should all be thankful to have as our home. Times are hard all over the world, but this is a time when we can all think about being together and treasuring our planet. And we have a pretty nice view of it up here. From up here, we see one world, one Earth, and uh, all together we should uh, celebrate this holiday. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good Earth. Christmas messages from Apollo 8 in orbit around the moon, Jingle Bell's Gemini 6, 1965, Skylab 4 from 1973, and Expedition 26 to the ISS in 2010 with Scott Kelly. Synthetic biology is, is a very interesting phenomenon. It's very much grassroots-based. There's this large community of very enthusiastic participants. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we return to the world of synthetic biology, discovering some of the ways this revolutionary technology might change the world. Plus, a genetic test to reveal flu risk and a twisted gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. Sitting here in front of us, got Monopoly set up. This was my Christmas present, so we're going to start a little game. And speaking of games, Georgia... Brings out the best in us or the worst? Well, we're about to find out, yes. To tell us a bit about the psychology of board games, I'm joined by Mike Paik from Anglia Ruskin University. To start with, why are board games, in all their shapes and sizes, so popular, would you say? Um, Well, I think they they offer people a chance to practice skills that they wouldn't get in real life normally. So it's a bit like playing with animals. Uh, For example, kittens play fighting, and that helps them hone their reaction times and their hunting skills without actually threatening them. So it's a bit like that with us. So when you play something like Monopoly, it gives you a chance to be a cutthroat business person (laughs) and bankrupt your granny without actually causing any long-term harm. Without actually ending up with a bankrupt granny at the end of the day. (laughs) If this is a form of kind of practising real life, is there any evidence that playing board games can actually make you any smarter? There's a lot of different skills involved with board games and if board games are a sign of performance in real life then I'm doomed because I was really bad at the game of life. I always used to get bankrupted in the last few stages of the game but psychologists have studied more serious board games like chess for many years and they found that there's a lot of expertise associated with the game but that doesn't necessarily generalise to other games but I think just a general give and take of, of playing games and learning simple rules does help children for example develop their, their cognitive skills for later in life And why is it the board games? Actually how, how are you guys getting on? Um, uh, we've already, we're already becoming property magnates over here I own Angel Islington so someone who's the hat? Connie. Connie owes me rent. Um, Peter's already bought up the whole of Whitechapel. We're back in the good old days when you could own Whitechapel for 60 quid. This, this brings me into why does Monopoly make some people, I'm thinking of Chris here, so competitive? Well, um, some people might say it was down to testosterone, but I'm sure that's true. I think because it is like a simulation of real life, a lot of the rewards that we get from really winning, really getting money, still motivate us when we're playing games. So even Monopoly money can be motivating. But they always seem to end in arguments.
arguments. I'm hoping it doesn't today, but I know at my family home there's been dogs and irons thrown around many times in the past. Well, yeah, uh, people get very annoyed by, by cheating, for example. So that most families have at least one person who's known as the family cheat. And there, there's some that argue that humans are specially geared up for spotting cheaters. So we're very conscious of rules when they apply to social behaviour, especially and social contracts. So because we live in social societies, we... We benefit from altruism and the reciprocity of, of living in groups, but we also have to watch out for, for cheating. So we, we seem to be particularly sensitive to cheating, even if it's only a game. Can psychology actually help us to maybe get better at games, win a little more? I'm thinking of cheating in a different way now. <laughs> well, um, it's funny. I was looking at a, an interview with a guy called Rick Marinaccio, who was the world champion Monopoly player a few years ago. And he takes it very seriously and says he, he actually looks for his opponent's weaknesses and exploits them. But um, in terms of things like chess, we know that to become an expert, you need to put in about 10 years or 10,000 hours of practice to become something like grandmaster. So no, no easy shortcut to um, beating my family at Monopoly. Well, thank you very much, Mike. That was Mike Paik from Anglia Ruskin. Hey, thanks. How, how are you all getting on with Monopoly? They're already getting so competitive, they've forgotten that they're actually on a radio programme <laughs> at the same time. But um, I've had to depart from the game temporarily. I owned two properties within that time. It certainly takes a lot longer to own an equivalent property portfolio these days. You can see the game rules clearly need an update, don't they? And how. I think we should have quantitative easing on the board (laughs) now. That should be the new thing for Christmas. Now, in a second or two, we're going to get started on some chocolate and some jolly tipples. But before that, it's time to watch some festive telly, of course, which for some is an excuse to have a snooze. For others... um, Christmas show, Queen's Speech, festive film, very much all part of the tradition. And this year there's one film that's been on everyone's mind, and that's Star Wars. Greg Jackson went to see Karen Yu from the University of Cambridge to find out how one film has inspired her to go into science. We're sat in the picture house in Cambridge. Everyone has just flocked in to see... Star Wars, the latest movie. You saw it earlier this morning, and I believe you're a big fan. It's actually how you got into science in part. I wonder if you can tell me that story. Yes, so I was around nine or ten at my local library and drawn to the science fiction section, and I saw a copy of Star Wars. It was a novelization of the first film. At that point, I hadn't seen the films yet, but I picked up the book. I had heard of the series, and I read it, and... From that, I was pretty hooked. I saw all the movies, and that wasn't enough, so I read a lot of the expanded universe stuff from there, and then from that, lots of other science fiction as well. What was it about it in particular that drew you in? All the things that they could do, uh, from visiting other planets, meeting all these strange and new alien life forms, interacting with them, and all the interesting technology, uh, hover cars, for example. I remember being stuck in traffic, and being like, well, why, why can't our cars hover and fly and we can avoid all of this? And questions like that made me think, well, like, why don't we have that technology and how can we get that technology? Can I help to do it? And that's what brought you to where you are today? Uh, yes. Originally, I had wanted to design some grand fusion-powered starship engine, but my goals have tempered a little bit since then. Currently, my project involves uh, laser processing and controlling that and uh, attaching feedback and monitoring so that the processing for micro and nanoscale components is a lot more efficient. 
So not the future of hover cars then? No, no. <laughs> but I still get to work with lasers, which is also pretty cool. <laughs> You've seen the most recent Star Wars. What did you think? I had a great time. I think it captured the feeling of the original trilogy a lot better than the prequels did. And that feeling that you get when the trumpets start blasting and the text starts scrolling across the screen and you know that it's begun, um, it's... I think that alone was worth the ticket, but the film was excellent, quite, yeah, wonderful. Did it reinvigorate your love of science? I'd like to think that that never left, but yes, (laughs) given the rate of my PhD, yes, it has a little. (laughs) Do you think that's the same with a lot of people, getting young people into science? Things like Star Wars and other science fiction movies really helps with that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, It just fills your imagination with all these things, and... I think I'm certainly not the only one to think, well, why can't we do these things? And when, when kids ask these questions, they start thinking about, well, how can I help and how can I get into science and make my dreams of having a hover car come true? Do you think it matters that they're sort of incorrect scientifically, if that makes sense? As a scientist and an engineer, when I see certain films and they play fast and loose with science. It does bother me a little bit, as I'm sure it bothers many other scientists and engineers. That being said, there is something about just leaving it open-ended and uh, not explaining everything and leaving it to the imagination. And the stuff that we can't do right now is what's going to inspire the kids who are watching it. One last question. It's a serious question, okay? What's your favorite Star Wars film? Uh, Oh, it's a toughie. I can see you. The new one is great, but I think it would still have to be Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I'm sorry. And um, favorite Christmas film? Uh, that's another hard one. Um, I guess, as odd as it sounds, it would have to be You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail? Yeah, I just, uh, it's always on TV, and I always end up watching it with my mom around Christmas, so it's just kind of like our Christmas film. Fond memories. Yes, very fond memories. That was Greer Jackson with Karen Yu from Cambridge University meeting there in the Cambridge Picture House. Now, Chris, what on earth is that? Right, well, I'm sorry about the noise, Georgia, but uh, we have a very important piece of scientific apparatus here in the studio because this is a chocolate fountain. And with with the chocolate fountain is, of course, Adam. Tell us a bit about you because... Adam Townsend from University College London, you are a mathematician, so why are you knocking around with a chocolate fountain? We're trying to answer some some science questions about chocolate fountains, so uh, a good one. The next time you look at a chocolate fountain, um, as we can see here, you can ask, well, why, when the chocolate falls off the chocolate fountain, does it fall not quite downwards, but slightly inwards? Um, I suppose we should explain for people. So what we've got here is uh, a series of tiers. There's Mm. the top bulb and then there's a, another one underneath another one underneath and then a big dish at the bottom the chocolate flows out of the top it runs over each of these things that look like upside down dishes don't they oh, yeah, yeah. and then it drops onto the one underneath it but when it does so it doesn't fall straight down like like water dripping off the edge it, it actually goes inwards a bit and then down yeah which is weird because gravity normally acts downwards so in this case it's going inwards so me and my, uh, my supervisor we looked at this and we thought okay well what uh, What's going on here? It's important to know that there's, there's key science going on in laboratories around the country looking mm-hmm. at important physics principles like chocolate fountains. But no, I mean, more seriously, there's, there's obviously something doing something to this fluid. And more broadly, 
understanding how fluids move and behave is important, isn't it? Because there are many applications beyond just chocolate fountains. You're using this as a simple model, but there are lots of reasons why this is relevant to everyday life in other respects. Yeah, for sure. I mean, knowing how fluids behave, how any liquid moves is, is clearly very important as liquids are, and fluids are absolutely everywhere. Chocolate is a particularly interesting type of fluid. It's um, what we call non-Newtonian. What this means is that the, the viscosity of the fluid, uh, that's its thickness, changes as it goes round. So lots of liquids like, uh, like water and even honey. I mean, they have obviously different viscosities. Honey is an awful lot thicker. But their viscosities don't change. When you uh, take a, a glass of water or something and you stir it, the viscosity, the thickness of the water stays the same. However, chocolate doesn't behave like this. So chocolate behaves... A bit, like, a bit like mayonnaise right, or ketchup. You know, you it have, tastes better, though. It does taste better. I mean, you can try mayonnaise uh, fountains, but... Uh, anyway, so... You, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, I don't think I will, actually. I'll leave yeah, that yeah. to you, Adam. <laughs> so if you take uh, ketchup, for example, and uh, you might know that you know, if you have a, a glass bottle of ketchup, it's quite difficult to get ketchup out of the bottle. If you do not shake the bottle, none comes out, and then a lotle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Ketchup has this weird property that it's quite thick um, and you can't get it out of the bottle, but you need to shake it. You need to give it some sort of shear um, before it starts coming out. And chocolate behaves in much the same way. Other things that behave this way, so uh, say mayonnaise, um, lava, nail polish, blood. Blood behaves this way. You don't eat most of those things, do you? No, not, not so much. But I'm just kidding. But, yeah. but how did you apply mm. physics and maths to this question? How, how can you actually take something like a chocolate fountain and start making mathematical equations to describe that? Sure. So we have uh, one big equation that tells you how every fluid moves. It's called the Navier-Stokes equation. It's really important and it looks horrible. And what you do is you ask what's really important in this uh, in this equation is the viscosity. How does the viscosity change as it goes, in this case, through the chocolate fountain? So what you look for is trying to figure out how does the viscosity uh, well, basically, how, how can you describe the viscosity? So you stick that into the equation and try and get some answers out of it, basically. And is that what you did? You now have equations that will describe how this fluid in this situation moves? Yes, yeah, so um, obviously uh, chocolate is a you know, million, uh, possibly billion pound industry. And so people have done experiments with chocolate and they can tell you exactly how the viscosity changes um, as it goes around. And so we you know, try, to, try, to, try to look these up. Um, convinced people to give us some data. We stuck it in and we uh, got some predictions and they seem to be pretty good from our, from our kitchen experiments. We know what they say, Adam. Proof is in the eating. Mm. Proof is in the pudding. Should we have a go? Yeah, help yourself. So we've got some bananas, we've got some strawberries, got some marshmallows. There's a large queue forming behind <laughs> you as well. You're not lying. Right, Show us what we do. Go on, let's go for it. Yes, yeah, so uh, from my extensive uh, chocolate fountain research, I can tell you that uh, strawberries are definitely the best uh, to, to put in here. So you take it and you uh, put it in. So if you want to be really mean to everyone else, you dip it in the top because uh, that's where you get absolute best coverage. But then you end up sort of... It falls off like that has. <laughs> yeah. It's gone down inside the machine. <laughs> yeah, so you... <laughs> but you get full coverage this way, you see, uh, which makes it very good. And then you stick it in your mouth. Oh, <laughs> I think we should let the ladies in, because Connie looks like she's about to murder someone if you don't let her go near it. Off you go. What, what are you going to go for? But We've got banana, we have strawberry, or we've got marshmallows. I'm going to do what the expert said. I'm going to go for a strawberry. Yeah. Is, is there a mathematical equation to describe how the chocolate coats the fruit or the marshmallow item? Yeah, so coating is a really important problem because if you're, for example, uh, an airplane manufacturer and you want to coat, you want to paint your uh, paint your aeroplane, well this is a coating problem because you end up with a nice thin sheet of paint and paint, paint behaves the same way as chocolate, which is amazing. Adam Townsend from University College London, yeah. thank you very much. And also top marks for your fantastic seasonal jumper, which rivals Peter's bow tie. I think the combination of the two would be an absolutely killer combo. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. 
on the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Twelve long equations, eleven spaceships launching, ten Stephen Hawkins, nine Stegosaurus, eight quarks are quarking, seven lasers beaming, six supernovas, DNA. Four microscopes, three test tubes, two chromosomes, and a partridge in a petri dish. The Twelve Days of Science Christmas, sung for us by the Templar Scholars. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. Also with me, Georgia Mills. We're having a party here in the studio. Coming up, how you can avoid a Christmas hangover and we'll be subjecting Adam to the breathalyzer. PC Andy Cooper's come in to show us what actually happens when you've had a little bit too much to drink. Did OK on the interview, though, didn't he, Georgia? Yes, he did. And I think before we get to that, I need a walk after all that chocolate. And what Christmas Day wouldn't be complete without a walk through the mistletoe? Ginny Smith. I've come to Cambridge University's Botanic Gardens on a rather chilly winter's afternoon because I'm on the hunt for mistletoe. Mistletoe is synonymous with Christmas. We all enjoy hanging it up over doorways and looking at its festive greenery. But how much do we actually know about the plant itself? It turns out mistletoe's story isn't quite as warm and fuzzy as you might think. It's a parasite, meaning it gets most of its nutrients and water from the tree it grows on. I'm here to see if we can find some mistletoe and find out a bit more about how it lives. Alex normally works in the glass houses, but it turns out he actually is an expert in mistletoe, so he's very kindly agreed to join me on my hunt. Where should we be looking? So at this time of the year, if you look into the gardens, you'll see mistletoe adorning the trees, hawthorns, apples, or any of those rosaceae genus, you'll definitely see mistletoe in those trees. So we're looking for deciduous trees that shouldn't have any leaves on, but actually have big balls of greenery, effectively. Yeah, at this time of the year, the mistletoe really does stand out. OK, well, let's go have a look then, shall we? We're going a bit further into the Botanic Gardens now and walking past a beautiful pond full of ducks on one side and a lovely rockery on the other side. And I've just spotted a tree in the distance there that looks like it might have some mistletoe on it. So that is indeed mistletoe. How does mistletoe spread? How does it get so far up into those trees? So mistletoe is bird dispersed. The berries are eaten by particularly thrushes, the main outer part of the berry is removed but the sticky substance that's around the seed remains when the bird defecates the seed is left on a branch and that sticky substance allows it to stick to the branch the seed then produces three appendages which make it look like a spaceship and these allow it to attach to the branch the plants that you see in the tree will probably have started as one initial founder plant and then missile thrushes and other thrush species generally will have turned up and moved the plant throughout the tree this plant is doing something that's very different to most of the ones that we're used to so from the tree it will be getting a number of things through a special attachment called a hostorium mainly water and possibly some other nutrients ions and salts What are the benefits to mistletoe of being a parasite rather than being a normal shrub? All plants are competing for one major thing, which is light. But one way to get around that is to elevate yourself on another plant above the canopy. But not only can you 
get the light more easily but if you plug into that plant you can also steal water and nutrients that you would have had to work to get if you'd planted yourself into the ground. Does it damage the tree that it grows on? Absolutely. The plant is taking water and nutrients from the tree and therefore the tree is losing out. However, one or two mistletoe plants are not going to do a major damage to a tree. Should we go a bit closer and have a look at some mistletoe? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so there's a a tree here which has got quite a nice crop of mistletoe low enough down for us to get a proper look at it. And you can see those beautiful pairs of leaves and the berries, just how I'd expect. So if I cut this little bit off here, and we can actually see here this dichotomous branching, and that creates that very traditional mound-like structure within the trees. At the branching point there, we can see this is a female, so it's got three berries at each point. I've never noticed quite how perfectly it splits in two and then two again, and how that gives you that perfect sphere. Yeah, it's a very interesting branching habit, and in fact, it's not very much repeated throughout the plant kingdom. Ginny Smith taking a stroll under the mistletoe with Alex Summers, who is the glasshouse supervisor at Cambridge University's Botanic Gardens. Now, we have been helping ourselves to some of Adam's present and keeping ourselves warm with some lovely brandy. It is a tradition, in my home at least, that Christmas involves something of a hangover the next day. But why do we get hangovers? And can science help us to avoid them? Down the line, we're joined by author of Chemistry at Home, John Emsley. Hi, John. So to start with, why does booze get you drunk? It it makes you drunk because the body's treating it as a toxin. It really doesn't want this. I mean, we get a little bit of alcohol from our intestines every day and the body wants to get rid of it. But if we give it a lot, then, of course, some rather nice things happen because some of the alcohol replaces the water along the central nervous system so we feel more relaxed, less inhibited, so we we can say things we wouldn't normally say and it can all be very jolly and friendly and... Wonderful is what you want at Christmas, of course. And then the less wonderful part comes, the hangover. Why do we get hangovers? <laughs> well, the trouble is, of course, as I say, the body regards alcohol as a toxin. It wants to get rid of it. And it's got an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase, which attacks the alcohol and, and turns it into something called acetaldehyde. And that's a really nasty chemical, which then produces all the symptoms of a hangover, headache, nausea, tight-chestedness, feeling sick. So when we wake up in the morning, when the level of that is quite high, we've got a typical hangover. I know the feeling well. Is there a way, short of not drinking anything, that we can avoid a hangover? Well, a few things. First of all, don't drink on an empty stomach. So if you're going out for the evening, you're going to go to something, have a glass of milk or something like that, so you're not drinking on an empty stomach. And then during the course of the evening, you you know, whatever you're drinking, perhaps occasionally have a a soft drink or something with no alcohol in it. Because you've got to try and counteract the dehydration that's going to occur, which will make the hangover worse. And what's the ultimate hangover cure in the morning, would you say? Well, when you get to the morning, the only thing you can do is grin and bear it till the level of uh, acetaldehyde has gone down, which will about midday or so. You can help that, though, by having a proper breakfast. And the best thing you can have is, say, something like toast and honey because then you're supplying the body with the things that have become depleted as it's been attacking the acetaldehyde, and so it will do that more efficiently. Why are some drinks worse than others at making you hungover? I'm thinking now especially of port, which is essentially a hangover in a bottle. (laughs) Yes, I know what you mean. The thing is, of course, some drinks, especially coloured drinks, contain lots of other things, like polyphenols, which, again, the body doesn't really want. I mean, these are quite useful in some respects, but not particularly good in terms of the body dealing with them. 
And of course, the darker the drink, the more you're likely to have these other unwanted chemicals. Acrolein is one, for example, which is really nasty. It's low levels in most drinks, but in a coloured drink, it's a slightly higher level of it. And so avoid coloured drinks. Your best thing is to stick to gin, of course. Oh, gin well, I'm vodka. happy to do that. <laughs> well, the reason for that is, of course, that's doubly or triply distilled alcohol. And I know it's distilled from various herbs and spices, so you get a little bit of a flavour with it. But basically, it's a quite a clean drink. And, of course, if you have that with something like tonic, you dilute it, perhaps one part gin to three parts tonic or something, then you're getting a fairly balanced drink then, which isn't going to leave you too dehydrated. Because the thing about alcohol is it affects various organs of the body and it makes it easier for the body to get rid of water, as we always know. And, of course, that's going to lead to dehydration, which is going to make the hangover worse in the morning. The best tip I always give people is, before you go out drinking, put a pint of water on the table in the kitchen or by your bed and drink that before you go to sleep. Is there any truth to the old saying, hair of the dog that bit you? Can drinking in the morning cure your hangover? It may help a little bit, especially if you have a very dilute drink. But I think if you find that you always get that effect in the morning then it's a sign you're getting towards alcoholism. So <laughs> a hair of the dog might work if you're in that state, but otherwise it's better to just have a non-alcoholic drink in the morning. And how long does it take to process alcohol, both in terms of getting rid of a hangover and in terms of how long it takes you to sober up? Well, it takes the body about an hour to get rid of it one unit, which is 10 grams of alcohol. And so a small glass of wine, half a pint of beer is one, one unit... But, of course, the thing is, once you start drinking, you perhaps tend to drink more than you realise. And, of course, when you stop drinking, it's going to be longer and longer before you can safely have a level which would allow you to do something like driving. Brilliant advice. Thank you very much. That was John Emsley, the author of Chemistry at Home. Now, a hangover isn't the only risk that follows a heavy night because it takes time for the body to break down booze in the first place at roughly one unit per hour. So it's perfectly possible to go to bed drunk and then be still well over the limit for driving the next morning. Now, armed with his breathalyser, PC Andy Coop, who is from the Beds, Cams and Hearts Road Policing Unit, has come in to talk to us a bit about the, the technology that you deploy at the roadside. Is it a pretty common occurrence you'll bump into someone who has had a heavy night the night before and they'll think they're OK to drive and actually when you talk to them, they're not? Yes, it's, it is a, a regular occurrence, sadly, yes. A high percentage of people that uh, come into contact with the police the following morning um, are unaware that they are still driving in excess of the the drink drive limit. Now, Adam, we actually gave you a rather interesting Christmas present here on the show, and you, you drank a pretty healthy half a bottle mm. of, uh, of your Christmas present. You have consumed brandy. Did you feel impaired at all? Well, I feel quite um, smooth, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> PC Cooper's making me doubt myself. So, uh, <laughs> How did you think the interview went? Did you, did you feel impaired at all? I, think, I, I thought my interview went very well, thank you. <laughs> So you would have been comfortable, probably, to, to drive yourself home, do you think, this evening, if you'd, if you'd been in the car? No, I, I feel a bit hazy. So I, I think I would have um, relented or taken the train or something like I'm that. I'm just saying that because you've got a police officer sitting opposite you. <laughs> uh, no, sir. <laughs> but this is about the size of a mobile phone, a big mobile phone, and, uh, and it has a pipe that you've, you've just attached sticking off the side of it. This is the Draeger uh, roadside screening device that we, we as the police carry um, in Cambridgeshire. And basically it's a screening device that gives us an indication as to whether the individual we've stopped at the roadside is over the drink drive limit. How does it actually work? What's it measuring on Adam when we do it? 
When Adam blows uh, through the tube, it's um, time to allow him to blow long enough through the device to get the um, air from within the bottom of his lungs, so it's not taking the air um, from within his mouth that's obviously got the stronger content of alcohol. Um, so we're looking for what's uh, already been absorbed in his system. So basically the alcohol that's in your blood, Adam, some of that alcohol dissolves in the air in your lungs. And so when you breathe out nice and hard and blow into this wonderful device, you're going to impart some of the alcohol in you into the device. Do you want, do you want to pretend that you've just stopped Adam then, Andy, and, <laughs> and okay. take him through yeah, the procedure? Yeah. OK, so, so hello. So obviously we've stopped you this evening. You've, you've come through our drink drive checkpoint. Uh, have you had any alcoholic to drink today? Yes. Yes. OK, I can smell it on your breath anyway as I'm talking to you. <laughs> so, so I'm going to require you to provide me with a specimen of breath. I must tell you that failure to provide me with a specimen of breath along with a positive specimen will render you liable to arrest and subsequent prosecution. OK, do you understand what I've said? Uh, yes, sir. OK, just seal your lips around the tube, form a nice tight seal and blow long and hard through the device until I say stop. So when you're ready, blow. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Stop. Thank you. So that will analyse your breath that you've provided me now. And then we'll get a reading up there. Uh, you've actually passed the test, but it has detected that you have drunk alcohol. So on this occasion, we'd obviously let you carry on your way, but with words of advice. It says 22 micrograms per 100 mils. What does that mean? Uh, that says that that's detected 22 micrograms of alcohol in his breath. So obviously the legal limit is 35. To 22 micrograms of alcohol is an allowed level for him to drive, albeit it does detect alcohol in his system. George has had a little bit to drink a little bit more recently. So do you want to have a go, George, and just see how more recent consumption affects you? How much have you had? Um, I think I've had slightly less than Adam <laughs> has, but I've been, yeah, I've been I can smell it. I, I can see what PC, um, PC Coop says. You can definitely smell it. The whole studio stinks of, of brandy now. <laughs> I hope you gave her permission to help herself. She's been stealing, stealing your brandy. Your brandy. It was a stressful show. I got to... <laughs> I'll just go through the, the preamble on the machine. That, that's where we would normally enter um, the, the subject as gender, their age... Uh, and the reason for which we we're obtaining the, 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 the specimen. So that's ready to go. So seal your lips around the tube and, and blow until I say stop. And again, because that hasn't immediately returned a zero reading, that's detected alcohol in your breath. Ooh, oh, there's these massive black letters that say fail. Oh, 44. That's that's well with. over, Georgia. Oh How much did you have? I didn't think I had that much. <laughs> and, and that's accompanied with, obviously, the red indication light there for people to see that they've failed. So you, if you'd been stopped by us on one of our checks or for something as, as simple as a stoplight out or, or a headlight out, you'd find yourself being arrested now and taken to the police station. Good grief. Is it possible that it could do a false positive? Uh, no, because we, we would get to the bottom of that. This is a screening device. Um, they would come under on the evidential machine in, in the custody suites. But if we're going on what, what we're saying, Georgia was drunk earlier in the evening, then obviously that, that just shows you that her body's dealing with the alcohol content differently. And, and if we're saying that we've both drunk the same, that's put her over the limit, whereas the other test was under. Are you surprised? I'm really surprised. I thought I had a lot less than Adam did. And I feel fine as well. Um, I don't think I'd have hopped into a car, but well, I'm quite relieved it's not illegal to drink and radio. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking and broadcasting. Georgia, thank you very much. And PC Andy Coop from the Beds, Cams and Hearts Road Policing Unit. And thank you to everyone else who's been on the show as well. Peter Cowley, Mike Paik, Adam Townsend, Connie Orbeck and John Emsley. And thank you very much to Georgia for production.
Plus, of course, an enormous thank you to you at home for listening and supporting us during 2015. We'll be back next week with a look at some of this year's best bits. Do try not to miss it. In the meantime, though, happy holidays and to play us out, the Templar Scholars. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by Rolls-Royce, the EPSRC and the SDFC. I'm Chris Smith, and see you in 2016. Goodbye.